Hi, and welcome back to DeJour. I'm Addison, and I'm going to be walking through sentencing disparities in many different contexts today. Stay tuned. For those of you who don't know, sentencing disparities are a form of unequal treatment in criminal punishment when similar cases are not disposed of in a similar manner because reasons that cannot be explained by legally relevant factors. These disparities are discriminatory in nature as they typically target people of color and are consistent with a larger pattern of racial discrimination that plagues the U.S. criminal justice system. The perpetuation of current sentencing policies allows racial discrimination to persist and be exacerbated within the system. It is imperative that fundamental changes be made to these policies in order to create a more just and equal criminal justice system. Since sentencing disparities is an intersectional issue, we are going to look at three panels of guest speakers who will be addressing three different aspects. We will be investigating the intersectionality of sentencing disparities in race, drug charges, gender, and youth. First, we will begin with Ella, who will be talking about sentencing disparities in Houston youth. Hi, Addison. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. Much of youth sentencing disparities stem from the difference in disciplinary rates for Black students in the classroom. This is part of the school-to-prison pipeline, which is defined by the ACLU New York as education and public safety policies that push students into the criminal legal system. Schools send students into the pipeline through zero-tolerance disciplinary policies, which involve the police in minor misbehavior and often lead to arrests and juvenile detention referrals. This can result in criminal charges and incarceration. To examine the effects of the school-to-prison pipeline on youth sentencing disparities in Houston, I reached out to Jay Jenkins, this Harris County project attorney at the Texas Center for Justice and Equity. When asked about youth sentencing disparities in Houston, Jenkins says, Well, so I'll tell you this, off the top of my head, like black kids are getting sentenced more frequently and for longer sentences. Because if you look at school police and the frequency which kids are cited at school by police, if you just look at teachers, if you just look at suspensions, however you look at it, it paints a very sort of dire picture as to the different paths for kids and that are white and kids that are black. The increased police presence in schools is escalating schoolyard offenses to criminal charges. According to American University, 290,600 students were referred to law enforcement agencies or arrested during the 2015-2016 school year. Only 15% of these students were Black or African American, but these students represented 31% of law enforcement referrals and arrests. The strong relationship between classroom policies and police presence is criminalizing young minority kids at disproportionate rates. When I got to Texas, I guess they've existed, but I, again, had never heard of a school police department. The Board of Trustees is responsible for oversight of police. And when I started doing this work in Houston, number one, the school to prison pipeline, just like we talked about, overwhelmingly black kids, uh, Latino kids, and the sentencing, you know, you'd see just dumb shit happening where like kids on bullshit charges would be held for any amount of time that's gonna like traumatize that kid and it's gonna impede that kid's life in some way shape or form and so it's up to the board of trustees and when we started talking to the trustees in hisd they were unaware that it was their responsibility to have any oversight of the school police 
like in Houston and Harris County, there's like 150 different law enforcement agencies with jurisdiction to arrest you at any time because you have all these school district police that have that sort of ability. And in Texas, what you get is the people that don't qualify for HPD, that then don't qualify for the sheriffs, that then don't qualify for Metro Police. Those are the people that are working in the schools in Texas. The lack of oversight present for school police officers is alarming, especially when police presence in schools is perpetuating the criminalization of Black children. After hearing about the alarming sentencing disparities stemming from the school-to-prison pipeline, I sat down with Charles Rothamel to see what is being done about this. Rothamel is the CEO of Houston Revision, a nonprofit focused on connecting with at-risk as well as system-involved youth. When asked what Revision is doing to combat the school-to-prison pipeline, Rothamel says, We have two our major activities uh, which are soccer and break dancing. These are these are skill-based activities that require a lot of time and 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 come with an entire subculture. So it becomes the kids' identity, and that's why we chose those activities. That wasn't random. That was intentional because math. You know, having kids experience mastery of a skill-based activity is an it's, it's just an invaluable tool for adolescent development because then if they can be good at one thing, they can be good at anything. Um, and if they get really interested in soccer, then they become a soccer player and then they're a member of a team and then they learn how to be coached. If they're a breakdancer, they become a part of the breakdancing community. They have you know new friends, new opportunities, very exciting things to engage in. The programs that Revision run are so important because they work to prevent justice involvement for at-risk kids. And as such, they work to decrease the disproportionate rate of justice involvement for minority youth. To close out our time talking about youth sentencing disparities stemming from the school-to-prison pipeline, I asked Jenkins for a final takeaway from our conversation. I don't think that the folks that, you know, live in school districts that aren't as heavily policed totally understand the concept of school policing and how policing is is fundamentally incompatible with the idea that kids are going to be educated and that the trauma that results from the fear of police is very, very real. And it doesn't even work. It doesn't even stop anything. From May to June, the number of admissions in the juvenile justice department fall off a cliff. And being like, when I was a teenager, the summer was when I was breaking all the laws, right? There is more law-breaking activity going on as, as from teenagers in the summer. So, you know, again, that showed me like, this is not responding to any specific problem. Overall, it's clear that the current educational and correctional systems in Houston are over-incarcerated youth, disproportionately young Black men. However, there are organizations you can get involved in, like Revision, that are working to empower youth and create lasting change for at-risk and system-impact youth. Thank you, Ella, for that in-depth review of the state of youth injustices in Harris County. Not only are we seeing disparities between Black and non-Black youth, but we also see disparities between men and women as well. Now, we will hear more from Nishanka and Sanaya about these issues and what is being done across the nation and locally. Hey guys, I'm Nishanka. And I'm Sanaya. And the topic I want to share with y'all today is gendered sentencing disparities within the criminal justice system. While this is a niche topic, it is still very prevalent and important to discuss. There is a significant lack of research concerning gendered sentencing disparities, especially at the intersection with race. Yet research that has been done has shown that gender disparities do exist in criminal sentencing, with men and women receiving different sentences for the same crime. These disparities persist even after controlling for criminological, demographic, and socioeconomic variables. 
raising concerns about fairness and impartiality of the justice system. Oh yeah, I just read these two studies that talked about this. A 2001 study done by the University of Georgia found significant disparities in criminal sentencing between men and women in the U.S. federal courts. The study found that men were less likely to receive no prison term when that option was available, less likely to receive downward departures from the guidelines, and more likely to receive upward adjustments. And similarly, in 2012, Sonia B. Starr from the University of Michigan Law found that men receive 63% longer sentences on average than women, and women are twice as likely to avoid incarceration if convicted. From the research I found, previous studies have used both quantitative and qualitative methodologies to investigate why gendered sentencing disparities arise and how they manifest. For example, a recent study published in the Journal of Interpersonal Violence found that gender affects judges' perceptions of sexual assault cases. Within this study, it was determined that several factors could potentially explain why female sexual offenders receive more lenient sentences than male offenders. One possible explanation is that male judges may exhibit a paternalistic bias in favor of female offenders. Also in another study, Max Schanzenbach found that increasing the proportion of female judges in a district decreases the gender disparity in sentencing. Another factor could be the racialization of female offending discourse. The stereotype of the crack mother icon has been used to exemplify racialized deviance from acceptable gender norms, which may result in white female offenders receiving double stigmatization in the courtroom. Additionally, in the region in which the offense occurs could also impact sentencing. A multi-level investigation conducted by Holland and Prohaska found that women in the South receive different sentencing than women in other regions. While these studies continue to shed light on the existence of gendered sentencing disparities, there is still much work to be done to address these disparities and promote equity in the criminal justice system. One important step towards this goal is the implementation of legislation that seeks to address these disparities and promote fair sentencing practices. Although there are not very many gender-specific legislation, broader sentencing disparity reforms and policies have been able to mitigate the problem nonetheless. At the national level, I know that the BREATHE Act, for example, is a federal bill that was introduced in 2020, which seeks to divest funding from law enforcement agencies and invest in community-based alternatives to policing. This legislation is significant because it acknowledges the disproportionate impact of policing and the criminal justice system on communities of color and seeks to promote a more equitable system. Another important piece of legislation legislation at the federal level is the Second Look Act, which was introduced in 2021. This bill seeks to provide a pathway for individuals who are sentenced to long prison terms at a young age to be eligible for resentencing after serving a certain amount of time. This legislation is significant because it recognizes the potential for rehabilitation and redemption, particularly for individuals who were sentenced to harsh terms as juveniles. Do you know any state-level legislation, Sanaya? Yes. From my research at the state level, several states have already taken steps towards this goal by enacting legislation that aims to reduce gendered sentencing disparities. For example, in 2018, California passed Senate Bill 1393, which eliminated the mandatory minimum sentences for several nonviolent offenses and allowed judges to use their discretion in sentencing. This legislation is significant because it has the potential to reduce disparities in sentencing between men and women who are often subject to harsher mandatory minimum sentences for the same offenses. Similarly, in 2020, the state of New York passed the Domestic Violence Survivors Justice Act, which allowed judges to consider the impact of domestic violence on survivors when sentencing them for crimes related to their abuse. This legislation is important because it recognizes the unique challenges faced by survivors of domestic violence and seeks to address the gendered nature of such offenses. 
At the local level, there have also been efforts to address gendered sentencing disparities. For example, Harris County has implemented a program called the First Chance Intervention Program, which seeks to divert individuals charged with certain nonviolent offenses away from the criminal justice system and towards community-based services. This program is significant because it recognizes the potential for alternative approaches to justice and seeks to address disparities in the criminal justice system. These and other efforts represent important steps towards a more equitable criminal justice system that addresses gendered sentencing disparities and promotes community-based solutions. Thank you guys so much for that overview. Finally, we'll be hearing from Anna and Harshini about sentencing disparities within drug charges. Hi, my name is Harshini. And I'm Anna, and we will be discussing sentencing disparities for drug charges. In order to fully understand the impacts of sentencing disparities for drug-based offenses, we looked at data from a variety of researchers and advocacy organizations. According to a 2012 study by the National Bureau of Economic Research, people of color are more likely to be arrested for drug charges because of law enforcement's emphasis on crack cocaine and concentration in BIPOC communities. This directly results from the Anti-Drug Abuse Act of 1986, a law that established the 100 to 1 ratio for crack versus powder cocaine offenses. The ACLU reported that the average federal drug sentence length for African Americans was 49% higher than white Americans under the Anti-Drug Abuse Act. The Fair Sentencing Act was later introduced in 2010 to limit the mandatory minimum sentences for low-level crack cocaine offenses and lower the cocaine disparity ratio from 100 to 1 to 18 to 1. Even with this change, a 2022 study done by Dr. Makila J. Wells showed that sentencing disparities for drug charges still disproportionately impacted black individuals. Multiple organizations have helped make significant strides in legislation and in access to critical services. One standout organization is the Drug Policy Alliance, or the DPA, a public policy organization that focuses on following and supporting policies that reduce stigma and the use of drugs. They advocate for the decriminalization of drug use and possession, and the use of alternative community-based programs to prioritize education, public and mental health, and other services in BIPOC communities. One of their most successful policy endeavors includes providing major campaigning and support for Proposition 36 in California, which implemented a mandatory diversion program that allowed judges to grant first and second time nonviolent drug offenders substance use treatment instead of jail time. Diversion programs are designed to provide an alternative to traditional criminal justice processes for individuals who have committed a crime. However, these programs are often only accessible after people have already gone through the courts. This means that individuals must first be arrested, charged, and go through the criminal justice process before they can even be considered for diversion programs. According to Catherine Neal Harris, however, diversion programs do not help reduce sentencing disparities. They are looking at how communities are policed, that's why, like, if you look at the marijuana diversion program, that's why diversion programs don't reduce disparities, right? Maybe they do an incarceration because there's fewer, like, drug-related incarcerations, but they don't reduce the underlying disparities because that level of police contact hasn't changed. The National Bureau of Economic Research also found that Black individuals were 17% more likely to receive jail time under Proposition 36. Given that people of color, specifically black men, make up the majority of the prison population, this means they are less likely to fit the eligibility criteria of no more than two offenses. Furthermore, it is up to the discretion of the judge to allow an individual to take part in a diversion program instead of being incarcerated, which doesn't account for racial biases. In general, Proposition 36, along with other diversion opportunities across the country, are only available to first-time, low-level, nonviolent offenders. 
This in turn cuts out the population that needs these services the most. Though people with mental illness and addiction are not violent by nature, not receiving treatment can lead to violent outcomes. Thus, the cycle of incarceration, addiction, and mental illness continues with people with more than one offense. On the other hand, another major success for the DPA is campaigning for Ballot Measure 110 in Oregon, which decriminalized drug possession in Oregon and expanded access to evidence-based treatment and harm reduction, amongst other initiatives. In an interview between the Oregon Public Broadcasting Radio and Tara Hurst, the executive director of the Oregon Health Justice Recovery Alliance, Hurst discusses the impact of Measure 110 on marginalized communities and the type of access it will provide. Substance use is not something that should be treated as a criminal justice issue, but really needs to um, be treated as a health care issue. And Measure 110, and I think a, a lot of us who supported it and continue to support it, recognize that the war on drugs that has been going on for 50 years um, has been a failure and has been you know, not only ineffective for getting people into recovery, but really saddles them with lifelong barriers to housing, employment, education, and and that just exacerbates the problem. So 110 is shifting to a health-based and science-backed approach uh, to substance use. And and that's why, you know, I think it's it's such an important law and such a transformational law. Um, and it will also have a huge impact on those communities that have been most impacted by the war on drugs. And in Oregon, we know that's our Black, Latino, um, Native, Indigenous, and tribal communities. And so what Measure 110 does is it funds low barrier treatment services, uh, which for one person may mean intensive outpatient services combined with supportive safe housing or and or a mentor. Um, another person, it could be that they need medication-assisted treatment combined with peer support. The difference? Meeting people where they are. There is no one perfect solution to reducing sentencing disparities. Yet, instead of only providing needed support once an individual goes through the courts, it is much more effective to completely remove punitive measures in favor of funding accessible, evidence-based treatment, community centers, transitional housing, and other public services all the way to omitting sentences completely. And the Houston public seems to partly agree. Houston Crackdown, a division of the Mayor's Office of Public Safety and Homeland Security, is responsible for organizing and facilitating volunteer initiatives related to substance use prevention and treatment, as well as aiding law enforcement efforts to reduce drug trafficking and related crimes. They host an annual National Prescription Pill Take Back Day and National Inhalants and Poisons Awareness Week. They've also co-authored a community-based study in substance use mitigation. In it, they found that Houston community members largely support education-based community prevention programs for elementary and middle school students and drug-free spaces for youth. The Houston community also wants more programs centered around reducing drug stigma and want policymakers to facilitate dialogue between community providers and the general public. So, how can everyday people get involved? There are several ways people can get involved with this problem. One thing people can do is to contact their elected representatives and urge them to take action by passing legislation or advocating for policy changes. Another way to get involved is by supporting advocacy organizations in any way possible, whether it's through donating or signing up as a member. Thank you to all the panelists and interviewees. As we can see, sentencing disparities encompass many different aspects and identities. The intersectional nature of the criminal justice system is what makes these issues difficult to tackle. However, you can help. 
You can write to representatives about how you want to see change in any of these aspects. You can volunteer locally, like with Revision to help with youth, or Houston Crackdown for substance abuse prevention. And as you can see, these issues are widespread, and we need your support to see real change. Thank you.